Well, tonight we are returning to the book of Philippians. We're in Philippians chapter 4, if you would turn there in your Bibles. Philippians chapter 4, our section is going to be verses 1 through 9, and we will not get through all of those nine verses tonight. But we will get a great start into them, I trust, and get a chance to see what's going on, because really it's hard to believe that we're already in chapter 4. I just looked back and I said, no, wait a minute, that, that can't be. You know, I must have made a mistake in the preaching schedule because we can't be this far along. And yet we are, and we've seen so many amazing things. In chapter 1, we saw this great prayer of Paul's that he launched us into this book. And he reflected personally on his circumstances in the gospel. Those things which others thought would be contrary, that would be upsetting to him, and he was rejoicing in them, even though some were preaching out of a contrary intent. Paul was rejoicing that even in that, the gospel was being proclaimed. And that's what it's all about, beloved. This is it. It's the gospel. It's the presentation of the gospel. It's that which has opened our eyes. It's that which has taken us from darkness to light. And it's that which must inspire and move us. Because the gospel is all we have. It's all that we need. And it's what this world has no idea about and desperately has to hear. What a gift it is to recognize that blessing that we have been given. So after he reflects on the gospel, he gives us some short instruction on right living. And then he transitions to chapter 2, which was this section of massive encouragement. He begins and he talks about the vital nature of humility. And how critical do we understand humility to be? You know, I'm so thankful this past week at graduation, not only did we see Averill graduate, um, but the man who delivered that message that night was H.B. Charles, and he pastors at uh, Shiloh Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida, And, and it was... Well, my mom is an unbeliever, and she was there, and I've been preaching to my mom for 20 years, and, you know, every time I know my mom's there, I don't want to preach at her because that's not the right thing to do, but I certainly make certain that I'm thinking about some particular illustrations that I hope will catch her attention. We get done with that message, and she goes, you know, I hung on every word that he said, and I was just like, boy, thank you, God. You know, it was, and it was just Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Go listen to it. You can get on the Master's College website. Carol did today. Is that just an absolute knockout? Yeah. Just Proverbs, do you know Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Of course we do. Trust the Lord in all your heart and all your understanding and all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. <laughs> Whoa. And then they give him an honorary doctorate on, on Sunday night at the seminary graduation and, and I mean, I'm sitting there, Karen and I are right behind his church family that's flown out to be here for this. And, and he's sitting up there behind the podium, and he's just sitting there bawling, you know, as they're talking about him. And he's, you know, sheepishly coming up there. And, and this is who that man is. A man who started pastoring his father's church at 17 years old. How do you do that? Humility. You, you don't do it without Humility. What's he, he, you know what he did with his wife for his first date? 
He took her to MacArthur's church for a Sunday night service after he preached in his church. <laughs> good first date. Talk, tell your kids to do that. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's humility. And, and Paul teaches us about humility in chapter 2. You know, consider others more highly than yourself. The, the verse that ought to just saturate our hearts and our church and everything that we do. And then he rolls into the kenosis passage and he shows us the beauty of the incarnate Christ, fully God and fully man, and uses humility as that perfect picture to show us how Jesus learned obedience. And you just sit there and go, wow, what an incredible understanding. And then he takes us further into the teaching on obedient living after he's taught us about the Lord. And that perfectly explained by Jesus, the one who was perfect in all things and yet was obedient to his Father. And we must be obedient. We must realize how much more of this word there is for us to be obedient to. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. <laughs> heard that verse, memorized that verse, know that verse, preached on that verse. Never heard anything like that verse. <laughs> how much more is there? Every verse, every word, so deep, so powerful. And we've got to have greater obedience to it. And that's what Paul teaches us as he rolled through chapter 2 and then concluded with this intensely personal section on his care and his love for the missionaries and all that they had gone through then in chapter 3 he begins another section of encouragement to the church as well as a warning in the first few verses about those who would attack the church so a perfect transition as he shows us as he teaches on humility, shows us humility in Christ, teaches us on obedience, shows us love, and then carries us in to say, now do likewise, but by the way, be ready because there are dangers out there which you will be facing in your church and those who would attack and a warning of the danger of spiritual pride that can arise in those first, chapter, those first verses of chapter 3. And, and that becomes the case. You know, it's so quick for us to, to look out there and say, oh my gosh, you know, that church over there, they got no clue about doctrine. You know, they're, this, they're all Arminian and they wouldn't have, you know, they wouldn't know the doctrines of grace if they hit them in the head or there's those Pentecostals and they're, you know, rolling around and barking in the aisle. And yeah, they're wrong, but do we pity them? Do we understand that we need to reach out to them? Do we understand we need to interact with them? We look at our community. We have this huge Catholic community. Do we look out and do we just say, you know, they're closed, they're not going to listen to us, they're all enshrined in Mardi Gras? Do we say, hey, this is our ministry. That The Antichrist in Rome who was out there, you know, telling them that there is no hell and that he's probably soon, as he's now said, that it's probably going to be okay for priests to come in that are married, but you just can't be a full priest. You're just a, a secondhand priest, but that's okay. You know, he, he's changing the rules every moment and proclaiming every step along the way that his word is more important than God's word. How, how would you like to be a Catholic? What would you be thinking? You know, particularly if you're a middle-aged or a, a slightly more senior Catholic and you have, you've seen more of a conservative element in the Catholic Church, at least as best you understood it. And now there's all of this. It, it will not surprise me one bit to see this man seek to embrace homosexuality in the Catholic Church. 
And these people, they're going to be floundering. And they need to hear the truth. And so Paul talks to us about being careful not to have a spiritual pride. To always be realizing that there but by the grace of God go, go we. And uh, so he, he talks about that element of spiritual pride. And then he rolls into that powerful section on gain and loss. And how really the only thing that's gain in our life is Christ. Everything else is lost. And he says so. I count everything as lost except for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And that's us. That's us. There's nothing in this earth that is of value to us. <coughs> Excuse me. There's nothing that we can hold on to. And Paul tells us that. And because of that, we're to continually press forward. And then he ends the chapter just like he began that is, with a note of encouragement followed by a warning. A perfect inclusio, by the way. Perfect bookends to sandwich that section. And with all of this background, we press on into the fourth chapter tonight. And our title is The Beginning of the End. The Beginning of the End. So appropriate as we consider this the last chapter of our book. And here we enter into the beginning of this ending chapter. And as we look at these verses for tonight, we're going to see again in these first few just how we see the beginning of the end. Let me just read through the first, uh, first few verses and then we'll pick it up um, next week as we continue on. And I'll share a few thoughts in these opening verses. Philippians 4 and verse 1, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Eudia and I urge Cynthia to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement, also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Our first point in our text tonight, the beginning of the end, I've titled our first point, A Perfect Introduction. A perfect introduction in verse 1. And our verse begins with a common English conjunction, therefore. Now, many Greek words are translated with this English word, therefore. And that makes it a little difficult sometimes. 
because those Greek words all have a different flair to them, but we kind of lump them all into this English word, therefore. Well, this is a very unique word, therefore. In fact, we saw it about four times in the book of Hebrews, and oftentimes it's translated in the older versions as wherefore. And it's a more all-encompassing reflection back it's a it's a standard conjunction but it looks at a more broad range than does the standard word that we might translate therefore this looks actually all the way back to the beginning of the book which is why it's so important that we understand all that went on in those chapters because they're now all brought to bear He is bringing this all to conclusion. He's wrapping it all up and he's drawing us in and he is now saying to us, therefore, my beloved brethren. So he takes us over all that he's written and he prepares to draw it to a close. And the first thing he conveys to them is his great care for them. Remember, we've talked about how this is arguably the greatest New Testament church ever to exist. The strongest church, that which has the least problems, and that which receives the greatest encouragement and commendation by the great Apostle Paul. And so now, as he conveys this concluding address, he begins by showing us three different phrases in which he expresses his love for them. Just to go over and over. It's as if he's just gushing on them. It's like, you know, when, when it's your anniversary and you just really want to let your wife know how much you love her. You know, it's, it's one of the big ones. It's 20 or it's 30 or it's 40. And whatever you've done, whether you've went and you've written something special in a card or you bought something special or you've made some plans and you just want your husband or wife to know how much love you have. That's what Paul's showing here. That's the, the thrice repeated effort that he makes to bring this to pass in these three phrases and the first is my beloved brethren and he's addressing in that he's addressing those that are the believers he's talking here only about those who are in this church and he acknowledges and understands as he does in every letter that there are unbelievers within the body but there are times as do all of the new testament writers that they bring this down and they focus it on just those who are the believers there may be others that are hearing but that's not the point his address this first person address is to those who are believers his beloved brethren his brothers and sisters in Christ. And he is referring to them as beloved, and he uses a form of that word agapao, indicating this unconditional and godly love. Something with, that we all seek to have, it is that, that covenant-keeping love of God. It is that love that God shows that will never change. It is that love of God which is not conditioned on who we are. And this is the expression of love that Paul seeks to show to begin with. His second term deepens his affection with whom I long to see. The footnote here in the New American Standard shows that this is actually directly connected with the previous phrase. The, literally, we could translate these two phrases together as my beloved and greatly desired brethren. 
They're in the same form. They're connected by the same form of this pronoun, our. And so he is talking about these beloved and greatly desired individual. The New King James, by the way, translates this the most close to the literal phrase. And it reveals to us more about this great church. Paul repeats this same detail, incidentally, back in chapter 1 and verse 8. In Philippians 1 and verse 8, Paul writes, For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affections of Christ. Here Paul is showing that longing, that desire, with the affections, with the love of God. As much as Christ wants to have us with him. Paul is desirous of being with these brethren. It shows us Paul's, not only his love, but the difficulty of his separation from them. It's just hard to be apart from those whom you love. It's a joy for us to go back and to go to California and to see old friends. But there's nothing like being here with you all. There's nothing like sharing in the ongoing activities, in the needs of our families, in the love that we have for one another. And as, as wonderful as it is to be at a, a church and around people you know, there's nothing like being at home. And this is how Paul felt about this church. This is, this is that one church. Paul's planted churches all across Asia Minor and into southern Europe, across through the eastern Middle East, or excuse me, the western Middle East. But this is the church. This is the one. This is the place where people have, have grasped his word, where they have grown exponentially, where they have supported his ministry, where they have loved him, where they have been all about a part of who he was and about proclaiming Christ. And he is so desirous of being with them. So he shares that in that second phrase, those who I long to see, or again, those who are the greatly desired brethren whom he loves. The third phrase describes the Philippians as his joy and crown. Now the idea of joy not only conveys his personal expression and his personal delight to think of them and to write to them, but it reflects the overall theme of the book of Philippians, one of the major themes being joy and rejoicing. So he is just emphasizing the fact that this theme of joy is just oozing out of him as he thinks about this beloved body of believers who he loves. So it, it conveys the book's main theme. And the crown here, it refers to a wreath that is won as in the Olympic Games or the Idumean Games, which actually were bigger than the Olympic Games at that time. Both were ongoing. The Idumean Games were in Corinth, and they were actually larger than the Olympic Games, which went on in Athens. So, um, but the, the, those that won the events would receive a wreath made of leaves. And so as he uses this word for crown here, he is reflecting an earthly award. 
It's an earthly reward of spiritual value, but it is not the same crown that we see referenced in Revelation 4 and 5, the diadem that will be laid down before the Lord's feet. Good for us to understand that there are two different usages of that word crown. And this one is speaking of an earthly crown that does have a spiritual connotation, but that it is different than the heavenly crown with which each believer will be awarded. So this idea of the crown is very important and and dr macarthur notes that the philippians were proof of paul's successful ministry efforts on earth how good did that feel for him i mean we think about his writing to the church at corinth they grieved him we think of his writing to the church at galatia i mean he barely gets grace and peace to you from the lord jesus christ and then pow i can't believe you have so quickly turned to another gospel which is not a gospel at all so some of these churches they're a burden to him in a big way but not not the philippians They are those who bring joy. They are the crown. They are the validation of all that he's done. We see further description of the same idea of joy and crown in 1 Thessalonians, obviously another great church. 1 Thessalonians 2 in verses 19 and 20 where we read 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 for who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Now, although the Thessalonian church is is an excellent church, they certainly have their problems. Paul effectively is writing to them to tell them that too many of them have become so heavenly minded and so focused on the return of Christ that they've lost sight of their earthly responsibility and work. And he'll bring strong chastisement at the end of Second Thessalonians as he tells them that those who are not willing to work should not eat. But here, as he reflects upon their eternal presence before Christ, there is this joy, there is this exaltation, this crown of hope. Same word that we saw in our verse. Well, already we see a perfect introduction in this thrice-repeated statement of love and of care. But Paul doesn't stop there. No, he commands them to stand firm in the Lord in verse 1. This command to stand firm is also uh, a, a repeat, and therefore it is emphatic from, first Thessal- or from Philippians 1 and verse 27. In Philippians 1 and 27, Paul wrote, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So now he is showing us that this is more of a connective tissue to Identical references from chapter 1, now repeated in chapter 4, drawing a bow around the whole book and showing us this powerful understanding. And what he commands them to, after he explains his great love, is that they stand firm. That they hold fast in the Lord. The same idea of standing firm, Paul exhorts the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 1. 
also in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 13. But my favorite that reflects this that I want to read for you is 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58. This was a section of scripture that as I was teaching out at the University of Mobile and we were getting to the end of the gospel class as I concluded our last teaching by going through chapter 15 and explaining to them the new bodies that we will have and how the difference between the earthly flesh and the heavenly flesh is described. But after he goes through all of that at the end of chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. That's it. That's it. It's like understanding this. All right, nothing is going to shake me. How can that happen? In and of ourselves? No, not going to happen. I'm, I, I'm as likely to be one who's shaken by every wind of doctrine as anyone else. So what does he tell them? Don't just stand fast. Stand firm in the Lord. Nothing can shake you in the Lord. Nothing can move you. Because it's not you who is doing the standing. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. If your load is heavy, yoke with me. For my load is easy and my burden is light. We stand there yoked in a wood yoke that would hold two oxen together with the creator of heaven and earth and let the winds of Satan and the attack of this earth and the depravity of our flesh assail us from every corner. As long as we stand with Christ, nothing is shaking us. And so we are able to stand firm in the Lord. But it is uh, another verse and again, that middle of the section is so powerful. And, and we aren't just standing firm, but again, we stand in the Lord. And he concluded with another term of endearment, the fourth repeat of the first at the end of verse 1, where he says, my beloved. This is a perfect introduction, a recap of his love, and a, a recap of his direction to these believers. I want to quickly look into uh, our, our next point, followed um, as we first consider a perfect introduction. Our second point is a particular intercession, a particular intercession in verses 2 and 3. And it begins in verse 2, where Paul writes, I urge Judea and I urge Cynthia to live in harmony in the Lord. Now, we're not told anywhere else about these women Paul strongly directs the actions towards them. He uses the identical verb twice in a row. This is one of the few places that I know that this occurs anywhere in the Scripture. He could have easily, for instance, used one verb and then included both names with them. Uh, I urge Scott and Karen. I urge Mike and Shirley. That would be normal construction in Greek language or in English language. But he doesn't do that. He says, I urge Judea and I urge Cynthia. That word urge is the word that also can mean encourage, but oftentimes it means to exhort. It means to implore. It means to plead, to appeal to them. And he is, all of a sudden, brings this strong plea out. 
And then he tells them that they are to live in harmony. That literal phrase in the Greek is to think the same thing. It says to live in harmony, which is a good translation. It brings to mind the idea. But he's saying think the same thing. You see, there's a problem here. And the problem is that they're not thinking the same thing. They're thinking their own things. And this is creating a separation in these two women. And this is a stunning consideration. They are not of one mind. They are causing division. And there is a powerful position of exhortation. Think about that. Think about the flow of this book. Does this not totally jump out of sequence? I mean, we've gone through the first three chapters. There's this powerful interaction. Paul reflects on his own life, and then he like ramps us up, and then boom, drives us through the next teaching session. Then he recaps a little bit, and he ramps us back up again, and boom, he drives us through another powerful teaching section. And we come to this concluding section, and he opens us up with this beautiful introduction about standing firm in the Lord. And here you are. Picture yourself. Okay, you're sitting in the church of Philippi, and the letters come in from Paul. Everybody's pretty pumped about the letter. The first three chapters have been read, and you're just like, yeah, let's go. You know, I'm ready to storm the gates of hell with a water pistol. Paul's with us. We're going. And all of a sudden, you're sitting there, and you're Yudi and Cynthia, and you get called out in the letter. Was that my name that he just called? And it's not like these are unimportant. It's not like these are women who didn't have an, a, an impact on the church. Look at verse 3. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. These women have been a part of hand-in-glove work with Paul during the struggles and the suffering of the gospel. These aren't the behind the scenes, you know, yeah, I, I'm, you know, I'll make sure that my husband's dressed and ready to go and I'll be there. You know, this is, this, these are the gals on the front line. These are the ones that are out there. Yeah, women's ministry, we got to get this going. We got to make these things happen. I got to carry these things forward. These are the movers and shakers in the church. And Paul identifies them as such. And not just that, that they are the same together with Clement and also the rest of my fellow worker, those whose names are written in the book of life. These are believers, tried and true, confirmed and understood by Paul as those who are going to heaven. But there's a problem. There's a problem with these ladies. And they're not seeing eye to eye. They're not in harmony what's going on in their lives. And they are in danger of defaming the great name and legacy of this church because of their division. These fellow workers who are about the progress of the gospel, true believers, their names written in the book of life takes us to, to Daniel 12, Revelation 3, Revelation 17 and 20. And yet there is a problem. They're being called out. And this is a strong warning of danger and of destroying this church testimony. How important is harmony in the church? Whew. Oh, they're just a couple of ladies. Really? 
um, I don't think you're going to find many more prominent uh, ladies called out anywhere in the Bible. And it's not like he just hammers on them and walks away. He tells you about how important they are. Lest any of us think women don't have an important role in the gospel ministry of Jesus Christ, well, Paul would tell us otherwise right here in a pretty powerful way. But the importance of being in harmony with one another can't be overstated. There can't be divisions amongst us because what does it affect? What do people think when they see that? How critical is it that we are keeping short accounts with one another, that we are truly loving one another, that we are looking around at our relationships with other believers in the church, but with all of the relationships with other believers, that we are looking across the body of this church, of this blessed group of people that the Lord has brought together and called Christ Fellowship Baptist Church, and that we are making certain that the fabric of our body is bound well together, that there aren't these kind of fraying pieces. Oh, that piece got caught. It's kind of looking a little ugly out there. No, we're not going to cut it off. We're going to figure out how to mend that back together how to re-knit and bind those pieces in. And that's what he is calling for here. And he calls out at the beginning of verse 3, indeed, true companion. Some uh, believe that in that particular case, that that actually should be translated as the name of the individual as opposed to being true companion or sincere yoke fellow actually is the, the identical or the literal translation. Some see this as a proper name for one of the elders. Uh, that name being translated as zygos or zudzigoi or, or something of that nature being a literal translation of the Greek. It, it really doesn't matter. We also don't know who this person is. I'm glad I'm not the one who Paul is calling out and going, oh, by the way, it's you. You go make sure you take care of these two ladies. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's what Paul does. And he expresses how critical these two women are. And how, two, how critical every two women and two men and one man and one woman are. Husbands, wives, friends, others in the church. It doesn't matter. We are a body of Christ. We are gifted by the Spirit of God to do the work of the ministry in edifying the body within these walls and empowering the body to go outside these walls and carry the gospel forward. Jesus Christ is going to return. And that return appears more imminent today than it did yesterday or a week ago or a month ago. And the more that we see with Iran and Syria and Israel and, and, and children trying to change their sex and at seven or eight years old and parents going, well, it's their decision, I, I just want to say, um, okay, when is the darkness and the wickedness of Noah worse than today? I think we've gotten there. How passionate must, must we be? How many do we see every day that are dead and going to hell? How many that say, oh, I'm a member of such and such Baptist church? How much love are we supposed to have for them? If not us, then who? If not you, then who? Your neighbors. How much more fervent must we be for our family to call them to that understanding lovingly and carefully 
because we know that there are no more difficult conversations than with those we love, our children, our parents, our aunts and uncles and others. Beloved, when Paul wrote, now is the hour of salvation, now, now is the hour of salvation. There's nothing holding the Lord back. There's nothing in the prophetic timeline that has to occur before Christ can return. And although that's a wonderful time as a believer, for those that aren't believers, this earth is as close to heaven as they will ever get. Can you imagine? That's a pretty daunting thought. So we need to make sure that those in our body are functioning so that we are encouraged and we are strengthening and we are moving out. Because we have a call and we have been given a gift and we have been given an encouragement and we have been given a love of the brethren and we have got to continue to strengthen and feed and nourish that in everyone that sits in any one of these seats any day that the doors of this house are open because only then will be, we be encouraged more to go outside and to speak that word and to talk to one another and ask one another the hard questions about how we're doing about going out and doing that. Because that's where we need to be. Beloved, we need to be in one another's kitchen. Lovingly, carefully, but continuously. Because it's too important a message. There's no plan B. There's no second team. We're it. And what a blessing it is.